Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, Canada could be in line to receive additional doses of COVID-19 vaccine by the end of March, thanks to an international vaccine initiative. But there's still lots of uncertainty around exactly how much. We'll ask the Minister of International Development for the latest details. Federal government announces additions to the list of terrorist organizations. Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Public Safety will join us to discuss who's been added and why. And this member of a civil liberties coalition will explain why he thinks terrorist listings are not the way to fight hate and white supremacy. And U.S. technology company has been found in violation of Canadian law by collecting images of Canadians without their knowledge or consent. Canada's Privacy Commissioner will discuss the case against Clearview AI. But we begin tonight with ongoing questions about Canada's supply of COVID-19 vaccines. Canada could be getting an additional supply of vaccines before the end of March. The World Health Organization says Canada could get almost 300,000 doses of AstraZeneca vaccine uh, through the international vaccine pool known as COVAX. The federal government says it's been told the number could be as high as 1.1 million doses by the end of March. But any shipments depend on AstraZeneca getting approval for its vaccine here in Canada. That could uh, happen sometime in the next few weeks. Canada, we learned today, the only G7 country so far to draw out vaccines from that international fund intended to help developing countries. More on that in a moment. In the daily question period today, more questions for the government and the Prime Minister on the vaccine supply. Canada's vaccination rate is the lowest in the G7. The Globe and Mail pointed out this morning that Canada will need to vaccinate 300,000 people per day or 2.1 million people per week to meet the September deadline the Prime Minister keeps promising. So far, only 124,000 Canadians have been completely vaccinated. Where is the Prime Minister's plan to vaccinate 2.1 million, 2. million Canadians per day? Hey. Right Honourable Prime Minister. Uh, Mr. Speaker, we have had a strong plan on uh, uh, procuring vaccines since last spring. We signed more deals with more potential vaccine manufacturers for more doses per capita than any other country, and that is paying off. We're getting uh, shipments of vaccines uh, uh, into Canada. We're delivering them across the provinces and territories who are getting them into arms, uh, and we continue to be on track to receiving the 6 million doses promised uh, by the end of March, uh, 20 million doses in the spring, and we will have all Canadians vaccinated by September if they want one. Karina Gould is Canada's Minister of International Development. She's been directing Canada's contributions and participation in COVAX, the International Vaccine Alliance. Uh, Minister Gould, it's good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Oh, it's great to be here, Peter. Look, Canada's already ordered some 20 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. We have sort of different numbers floating around today from the uh, World Health Organization and COVAX uh, from your government about exactly how many doses Canada could receive from the COVAX facility in March and through June. What numbers have you been told that Canada will receive? Well, so the purpose of the COVAX facility is to provide vaccines for 20% of the populations of those that are members 
this calendar year. So Canada has an allocation for 20% of our population. Uh, and the numbers that were released today from the WHO were precisely the first allocations that will start to flow uh, in the coming weeks through the COVAX facility. So what number is that? Do you, we've been hearing it's 1.1 million doses, the Minister, Minister Anand said, uh, by the end of March, up to 3.2 million doses by the end of June. But that document released by COVAX today shows that Canada has been allotted 1.9 million doses uh, for the end of June, so a lot less. Is that your understanding? Uh, my understanding is the same as Minister Anand's. Um, and the, the point of the document that was announced today, or was released today, was really to demonstrate what the potential schedule could look like. Um, but, you know, I, I would go with Minister Anand because she's the one that has the direct relationship uh, with COVAX and with suppliers. All right. Uh, it brings some questions around the broader issue of what COVAX is for. And we, we learned today Canada is the only G7 country to draw from the COVAX limited supply of vaccines, which are primarily meant for poor or developing countries. So how does Canada justify that? Well, actually, the way the reason why COVAX was set up was to create equitable access. And so its intent always had two streams. It had the self-financing stream, which Canada and other um, nations who are able to pay for their allotment can go through. And it has the AMC, which is the Advanced Market Commitment, which will provide donations to uh, countries who would not be able to pay for it on their own. So it always had those two streams. And Part of it is the self-financing portion, mm. at, you know, helps uh, the AMC portion secure access to doses because COVAX is procuring and buying doses from pharmaceutical companies. And so the intent was always to enable self-financing countries to receive their allotment at the same time as providing doses to lower income countries who would not be able to make those um, purchases right, on I, their own. I guess the question that many people will be wondering is, is Canada getting doses? I know we, we have a, an allotment of 20% of the population. Are we, are we getting doses while some poorer developing countries have yet to get a first dose? So the point of COVAX is to deliver those doses at the same time. So the document that was released today by the WHO will show the different allotments for each of the, you know, over 180 um, COVAX member countries. And so at the same time that Canada will be receiving COVAX doses, so too will other countries within the COVAX facility. So the point really is that these doses are be being delivered at the same time. And COVAX made their purchases based on um, the, um, the submissions made by all of the member countries, both self-financing, like Canada, and AMC, those that will be receiving doses uh, via donation. Right, but, but do you have, as, as a contributing country, I mean, do, do you have the, the option of deciding when you want to get your doses? Because we know that European countries are also facing shortages, but uh, none of them have tapped the COVAX supply yet. So what does it say about Canada's case? Uh, well, basically what it says is that Canada has entered into a number of different agreements with different manufacturers, including the COVAX facility, to ensure that we're getting doses for Canadians. I mean, our top priority is to ensure that Canadians get vaccinated, while at the same time ensuring that there's access right around the world. And, you know, we have been uh, the second leading contributor to the COVAX facility financially for the um, those that will be receiving doses. I'm the co-chair of the AMC engagement group. So 
So really pushing to make sure that there is equitable access. And part of the other reason of, you know, Canada being part of this facility is to demonstrate our trust um, in this institution and in this mechanism. And I think it's actually important that Canada is there both as a country that will be receiving doses to shore up that confidence in the mechanism and that's supporting uh, doses going to developing countries. But just to be clear here, so you, you are saying that the fact that Canada is tapping into COVAX now uh, or in the month of March and then through the month of June will not in any way affect the numbers of doses that flow to poor or developing countries. That is correct because COVAX made their purchases and allocation decisions based on uh, all of the countries that had expressed an interest in receiving doses. Could, could you defer Canada's doses to help those countries that have yet to get theirs? Uh, that is absolutely a possibility, but I think Canada has been very clear that um, you know we will do our part to make sure Canadians get access to a vaccine while at the same time working to support others. Um, and so if we get to a point where, you know, we are not in need of vaccines here in Canada, that that is very much a, an option that could be exercised. Some would look at this, I think, and say uh, that your government is perhaps so worried about its vaccine supply that it's had to dip into COVAX now, uh, COVAX now to make sure that Canadians do get vaccinated as soon as possible. Is Is the COVAX supply that urgently needed in Canada? Well, I think, you know, right around the world, the COVAX supply is urgently needed and vaccine doses are urgently needed. And it was always part of our government strategy to make sure that we had multiple avenues through which to secure doses to Canadians. And COVAX was very much part of that. And in fact, COVAX was pitched to, uh, you know, all countries in the world, including developed countries or developed economies, as precisely that, as a way of mitigating and managing risk. And I think it was a prudent decision on behalf of the government, you know, back in the summer to make many different agreements to ensure that Canadians would receive a vaccine. We knew that this was going to be a very competitive environment. We knew that there could potentially be supply issues. And so making sure that Canadians had access to a vaccine was always part of the plan. All right, so this is not a a desperation move here because Canada's worried about getting the vaccines it expected to get. Correct. All right. Uh, International Development Minister Karina Gould, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time tonight. (laughs) Great to talk to you too. Thanks, Peter. The federal government has added 13 new groups to the terrorist list, including the Proud Boys, linked to the attack on the U.S. Capitol building last month. The list of new groups includes white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and militant Islamic organizations. It is not necessarily a crime to be a member of the groups on the list, but there can be serious criminal, legal, and financial consequences. Banks can freeze assets, and police can charge anyone who financially or materially provides their support. Here are the new groups added today. The Proud Boys, they're a neo-fascist group with chapters in the U.S. and Canada. The Atomwaffen Division, which calls for violent, act, violent acts rather against racial and religious groups. The Base, another neo-Nazi group. The Russian Imperial Movement, which has ties to neo-Nazi groups worldwide. The list also includes three Al-Qaeda affiliates, Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam wal-Muslimin, Front de Libération du Massina, and Ansar Din. There are also five Daesh affiliates, Islamic State West Africa, Province, Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, Islamic State in Libya, Islamic State East Asia, and Islamic State Bangladesh. And international terror group, Hezbollah Mujahideen. Here is the Minister of Public Safety explaining why Proud Boys has made the list. 
there is a threshold beyond which um, the, the, it's no longer about speech. It's about violence and it's about extremism and it's, and it's about terror. And, and, and in, in, in my opinion, based on the totality of evidence that my, our national security intelligence organizations and law enforcement have gathered, also what we have obtained from our international Five Eyes partners, particularly from the United States, I think it provides us with, a, with an overwhelming preponderance of evidence that the activities of that organization now meets the threshold of a terrorist entity. Joel Lightbound is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Public Safety. He joins me now. Mr. Lightbound, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Good to be with you. Let's start with the why here. Why have you added these 13 groups to the list? What is it about their activities or their intentions or pronouncement that earns them a spot on the terror list? Well, uh, it's, a, it's a process that uh, with our national security agencies uh, is always ongoing uh, where we examine different groups operating uh, in Canada or having uh, members in Canada or operating across the world that we, we surveil and, uh, and, and our security agencies assess the, um, their, their actions. And based on their assessment and the evidence and the intelligence that they gather, uh, periodically we will be adding uh, different groups to uh, ter the terrorist list. Uh, different entities will be added. So that happens year after year. Uh, and this, at this point, we're adding 13 new uh, entities, as you've mentioned, based on the intelligence and the evidence that our security agencies have been able to gather over the course of the last Okay. Uh, months and years. Tell me more about the consequences of, of being named to this this list. And, and I mean, how does it restrict an organization's ability to function? And what does it mean for people who may be members of these organizations? Well, there are many consequences uh, for an entity when it is listed on this group. Uh, the first one uh, is financially, it, um, it uh, requires of banks to freeze the assets of the groups. Uh, and it also um, gives more powers to our law enforcement to um, lay, well, either to lay charges, uh, terrorism, uh, uh, terrorism link charges, or to um, counter the uh, activities of the group when it comes to recruitment, when it comes to uh, what they're posting and doing. Uh, so it gives essentially more powers to law enforcement and also to our prosecutors to lay charges. We've heard a lot about the Proud Boys. Uh, that group has been around for a while, named to the list today. Um, and they've been in the headlines recently. Why have you decided to, the government decided to add them today? Is, is there something that Canadian security forces have seen or heard that presents an imminent threat to this country? Well, I can't go into the details of uh, what's uh, what's prepared because it's uh, related to national security. Uh, so what, what's prepared by our intelligence agencies. But as I've mentioned, it's an ongoing process. Uh, and at this point, with regards to the Proud Boys, it's a, it's a group that has been under the radar, or, or on the radar, I should say. Sorry for my English. It's been a while since I last... Uh, hey, I your, English is, your, your English is fine. It's a little rusty, but uh, it, it's been on the radar of our agencies for, for months and, and years. And I think what we've seen in the last couple of weeks has uh, revealed more of the group to intelligence agencies that's working with our Five Eyes Five Eye partners. Uh, so that's allowed them to collect the information, sufficient information, substantial evidence and intelligence so that it can pass the, the threshold set in the criminal code mm. for an entity to be listed. And once that happens, it's also reviewed by the Department, Department of Justice 
to make sure uh, that it meets the, the legal criteria set out in the criminal code. And that's why we arrived today um, to this determination that Proud Boys is, uh, is to be listed. The government has gone a great extent, and it, it happened again today in the news conference with you and Mr. Blair, that to look, say, look, politics plays no role in any of this. And, and you say the decision to add these groups, not a political one. Uh, but let's talk about the Proud Boys. The House of Commons just last week passed a motion unanimously unanimously passed to add the Proud Boys to the terror list. And today, you did. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, he's claiming credit for that. He's thanking Canadians who pressured the government to take action against the Proud Boys. But you're saying there's no connection there, no politics. It's just mere coincidence, the timing of Proud Boys being named to the list. Essentially, yes. I mean, I understand why, given what we've seen um uh, namely after uh, January 6th and the uh, in insurrection uh, mob that we've seen take over or, or the Capitol in, in Washington, that it's this organization has garnered a lot more attention and from politicians and media. But it uh, does not take away from the fact that we've been uh, surveilling and assessing the activities of this group for months and years now. And this is uh, the, what, what the motion in the House although I understand the sentiment where it comes from, has no bearing on the legal decision that was made and announced today. But, but you, you would agree that the timing is, is certainly interesting. Uh, if Proud Boys have been on the radar for some time and suddenly uh, there they are with the, the, the attack on the Capitol in Washington and some of their other pronouncements and suddenly they're on Canada's terror list. Uh, but that's just a coincidence. Well, well it, it's it's... There, I mean, what 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 we've seen happen in the last couple of weeks has allowed our agencies to gather trove of uh, information, of evidence, and and of intelligence on this group that that's that's helped us in our assessment. But it's uh, it's also, I mean, it, it's a group that was on the radar of security agencies for for years now. Mm -hmm. So it's not um, to, to us. It's it's it's. It's never, uh, and it should not be a political decision. It's always got to be a legal decision based on the evidence that our security agencies uh, garner and provide to us. And, and then based on the legal assessment, whether it passes the threshold in the criminal code, and that's what has guided us today for Proud Boys, but also for the 12 other uh, organizations that are listed today. Okay. And, uh, and that's, what, that's how it should be. And I, I would also say that to us, uh, Due process is important. It's important that um, you know we protect Canadians on the one hand, but that we also protect the rights of Canadians. Uh, and there are recourses when an organization is named on this list. Uh, for once, they can uh, appeal to the federal court for judicial review. The list is reassessed every five years to make sure that any entity that is listed is justified to be on the list based on the evidence and the intelligence. So there okay. are uh, mechanisms to make sure that these decisions uh, always are based on sound legal uh, criteria and sound intelligence and, and, and evidence uh, and not politically motivated. Just have about uh, 20 seconds or so left, but a quick answer if I can. What's to stop these groups from just reforming under another name? Well, we can uh, trust our uh, intelligence agencies, and I want to thank them as well for the work that they're doing, uh, that they will be, as they always are, monitoring uh, any threats posed by uh, by the groups that are listed. All right. Uh, Joel Lightbound, uh, good to talk to you tonight. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
A coalition of civil liberties groups welcomes the federal government's commitment to fighting hate-based violence, racism and white supremacy, but it argues that listing groups as terrorist entities is the wrong approach and will eventually encourage more hate. Tim McSorley is the National Coordinator of the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group and as you can see he joins me now. Mr. McSorley, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me on. Okay, let's let's you know the government has made a new has made new additions now, thirteen new groups to its list of terrorist organizations. Why do you believe it's taking the wrong approach to fighting these groups and what they stand for? Right. Well, our coalition since two thousand and one, when Canada first introduced the the, the Anti Terrorism Act, has been very critical uh, and called for the repeal of many of Canada's anti terrorism laws, including the terrorist entities list, because they they violate some fundamental precepts of uh, due process, access to justice, and the fundamental rights of Canadians. So we think it's incredibly important that the government made this move today to signal that it's taking the threat from white supremacists and hate groups seriously. It's an urgent threat that needs to be addressed. But by using laws that have been, that can undermine uh, the rights of people in Canada and people around the world, um, and that also is based on what we would describe as a, a discretionary and possibly um, politicized process, that going forward, uh, we could see more problems down the road than what they're they're hoping to address right now. Right. I mean, how do you get people in the arguments you make? How do you get people past, uh, you know, that that emotional bar that says, "Look, you hear the names of these groups, you hear what they stand mm -hmm. for, and all you want to do is say, okay, you know, let's let's find a way to restrict them, to shut them down." Uh, mm -hmm. How do you convince them that they need to think beyond that? Well, I think one of the things that hasn't been part of this debate is that there are parts of the criminal code that already exist that can be used to go after groups like the Proud Boys and other groups that engage in, in violent and hate-based activity. And the government could also move forward with enacting or modifying current laws on the books to uh, create a possible listing process that would, um, that would protect uh, fundamental rights as well. We're not against saying that this is a group that commits violent crimes and we need to take action against them. The issue is that the listing process as it stands right now is a secretive process that allows for the use of secret evidence. So that if you're put on the list, you're not able to challenge it um, fully uh, afterwards when you take it to court. And so those are the problems that we're talking about. And the issue is that those kinds of problems also seep into other parts of Canadian law. So if we justify it for a terrorist entities list, it's also justified for other pieces of um, national security and anti-terrorism laws. How, how does a name on that list, uh, those added to the list today and those that are already on the list, how does a name on that list uh, potentially perpetuate the racism and hate instead of preventing it? Well, our problem is that it legitimizes that list itself. So up until today, only two of 60 groups that are on the list were white supremacist groups. Today we see four more white supremacist groups added, but nine more groups that are tied to uh, groups in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia. And so our problem is that for the last 20 years, people have pointed to the terrorist entities list to say, see, the only problem of violence and the real problem of terrorism only comes from these groups and not from white supremacist groups, not from violent hate groups. And so our concern is that this is a, a blip on the map, that we have a government right now that is taking it seriously. But um, after the next election, another government could easily use it to further entrench this idea that it's only groups that are tied to certain parts of the world or to certain religions that are a problem, um, or that could use this opening in the list to add groups that today we would never think of as terrorist groups. So for example, hmm. there are some on the right 
who, you know, opportunistically call uh, anti-fascist and Black Lives Matter, Matter activists or um, indigenous activists extremists and even terrorists. And so we're concerned that by legitimizing this listing process down the road, um, that's where we'll see the harm is with a, another government that maybe is more opportunistic or doesn't share the, the politics of this government. All right, uh, Tim McSorley, good to get your perspective. Thanks for taking time tonight. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Privacy commissioners in Canada have concluded that U.S.-based technology company Clearview AI broke Canada's federal and provincial privacy laws. The four privacy commissioners found that Clearview collected photos of Canadians without their consent. The database of photos was then used by some Canadian police forces to look for suspects from photos on the Internet and on social media. Daniel Terrier is Canada's privacy commissioner and he's with me now. Mr. Terrier, thanks for taking time to speak with me. I do appreciate it. Welcome. Let's start with what you were looking into. Why did you decide to investigate the actions of Clearview AI? Well, there were press reports uh, last year about the activities of uh, this company, uh, and there was uh, criticism worldwide uh, of their activities. Um, and we ultimately concluded that what the company engaged in uh, was mass surveillance given that they had uh, scraped, amassed uh, biometric information, facial recognition for uh, approximately 3 billion images uh, worldwide and millions uh, in Canada. So in, in part, it's the breadth of the activity and the number of people uh, affected and the ultimate goal of identifying people uh, to the police. Yeah. Uh, law enforcement activities are, of course, uh, necessary in a society, but to have uh, billions of images of innocent people used essentially to bring people uh, in a virtual, perpetual police lineup uh, is, is just beyond any possible uh, acceptable limits. What, what makes it a clear violation of Canada's privacy laws? Because I'll, I'll get into what the company responded in, in a moment, but when you looked at these, uh, this company's activities and the fact that police forces were using this database of photos, uh, what made that a clear violation of Canada's privacy laws in your, in your eyes? Uh, as you mentioned, uh, they uh, collected these images without consent and without explicit consent. But we see that uh, fairly frequently, unfortunately. I think uh, what uh, was clearly unacceptable was the change in purpose uh, in, in the information. People were innocently uh, socializing on social media, exchanging information, putting their uh, photographs uh, on social media for, for that purpose. And then a company collects, again, billions of images uh, and, and uses them for a completely different purpose, uh, creating risks for, for individuals. So it's the sum of, of all that, uh, but certainly the, the, the breadth of the activities is, is a big part of it. 
the, the company argued that the images in its database, they said, look, they're, they're publicly available and that it did balance privacy rights against its own business interests. It also said that, you know, the privacy laws in Canada really didn't apply to it because it wasn't really material, materially connected to Canada. Why did you reject those arguments? Well, on, on the point that uh, the information was publicly available in a, in a, in a certain sense, uh, you, you might accept that, except that privacy laws in Canada have a very narrow definition of what is publicly available and therefore can be used by companies. And there's a reason for that. And it is exactly what we're seeing here. Uh, information uh, is publicly available under Canadian law in, in very narrow purposes so that individuals have a modicum of control uh, as to what purposes they, they will allow uh, their information to be used. Yeah. Uh, so there's a difference uh, between what is publicly available uh, in common language and what is publicly available in, in Canadian law. Can, can the, I... So can again, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just very short on time. Can I? Are they subject to any penalties because of this finding? Not, uh, not currently, not in any of the four jurisdictions. Uh, there's, as you know, Bill C-11 uh, before Parliament mm -hmm. uh, that would provide penalties for some types of violations, but unfortunately not for the types of violations that we found against Clearview. So even under the bill before Parliament, they would not be subject to administrative monetary penalties. I think that's a, a gap in the bill before Parliament, and I will ask parliamentarians uh, to amend it. All right. Uh, Canada's Privacy Commissioner, Danielle Therrien. Uh, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time tonight. You're welcome. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.